Ashley, what's your little girl's name? <laughs> I caught you thinking something. Uh, the one that was like, yay! Layla. All right. I love her. She's, that's the kind of joy we need to have. If you notice, she, at the end of a song, she just clapped and uh, rejoiced with us. And, uh, of course, Mama said, shh. But I was like, just let her, let her be happy. Let her be happy. Uh, unlike John, I, which was totally appropriate, I, I don't have a solar eclipse uh, sermon. I did notice that he took his solar eclipse donut away. I didn't have breakfast this morning, but he wasn't going to chance that. Um, but his application is, I mean, it's just right here with what we're going to talk about also today. It's good to be back. We were gone for about a week. We were in uh, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, visiting our daughter and her family, and it was a uh, wonderful time being with grandchildren and children that we hadn't seen in six months or so, and uh, we enjoyed the time out there and the beauty of it, even though it was really smoky with all the uh, forest fires that were around there, uh, it was still a beautiful um, uh, country and a beautiful time together. Uh, we're looking at really... I was I had to shorten my sermon last time on this Christian worldview, how we look at the world, what we do with what we know. And what has happened here is John is closing out his final thoughts and he's drawing all the entire epistle together with under three categories. And he introduces each one of these in verse 18, 19 and 20 with the words we know. And when we see those three words, we know, he says, this is the this is foundational to what I've been saying. This is I think he is saying this is foundational to Christian living. This is how we should live. And yet in modern Christianity, we haven't emphasized these three no's. We largely live and I'm making a broad statement here. I know we largely live without these Things in the forefront of our knowledge. Mike was just talking about the Lord's Supper and it being what we remember. And it should be in the forefront of our thinking. And here he says these three no's, they're really not up here in our mind where they should be in the forefront of our thinking. We could almost say we don't know. We are forgotten. We no longer live this way. And so I want to switch that and listen to this. We no longer live as new people who do not live in the state of sin. We have forgotten that Jesus keeps us safe and that evil cannot lay a, lay a hand on us. We no longer remember that we live with a new way of thinking. It is no longer clear to us, it's entirely debatable that we are a people of God. And we are not sure if the rest of the world lies in the lap of the wicked. I hope as we read those, you thought, no, that's not me. I don't think that way at all. Great. You have seen what John is trying to say. You've seen what God is trying to tell you. But I think much of Christianity, we live this way in our daily life. On Sunday mornings, yeah, we get back to where we need to be. But in our daily life, we, we don't live According to these truths. That's not the life that God has called us to live. That's not the life that God has. That's not the way of thinking 
that God has called us to live. And so it's essential to emphasize because it's so easy to forget. And it's important to be repetitious so that we can in confidence say, we know, we remember, this is how I view the world. This is how I live my life. I'm not forgetting this. I know this. Because you see, Christianity is not a religion of church going and church singing and church Lord suffering and church giving on Sundays and Wednesdays. That's a little part of our life. But Christianity also is not also is not a life of weak love, nice feelings that direct us, just be nice people. Rather, Christ followers are literally new. Literally brand new as a group and as individuals. God's spirit really, truly resides in us. Individually and as a group. And we're in this process of changing. We're growing. We're learning how to live this life, how to live this new life. And a lot of Christians really struggle with this. They, they're like, all right, you tell me I'm brand new. You tell me I'm a new creature in Christ. And yet I don't feel that way. Listen carefully. When you, when you come into the Lord, when you come into Christ, when you come into that relationship, when you're baptized into him, when you're immersed into him, instantly your relationship is changed. You are no longer enemies. You are no longer outcasts. You are no longer, you know, away from God. You are instantly in a relationship called child of God, beloved. That's who you are. And then the rest of your life, you learn how to apply that. It's a process. It's a growing. It's it's a continuous thing that happens in your life. And it's like the stock markets. You have bear markets and what's other bull markets up and down, up and down you go. But over time, you can look back and say, you know, I've grown. I have changed. My attitude has changed. My my actions have changed. I have grown in this area. And there's times that you, you mess up and you struggle. But your relationship is still firm. You're still a child of God, but you're learning how to change. You're transforming, the Bible says. It's a transforming of your mind and a transforming of your life. So John reminds us, and we could say he urges us to know, to not forget this essential way of looking at the world around us. As we walk through the world, how are we to think? How are we to live? How are we to act? How are we to view the rest of the world? And it's a truth. It's not a guess. It's not a philosophy. It's not an opinion. This is the way the world truly is. And we must work at remembering this truth. We must live according to this truth. And here's the truth. As I've stated over and over, and the reason I've stated over and over is because John states it over and over. I am God's child. Verse 18, verse 19, that's how he begins both of, of, of chapter 5. Both of these we know. I am God's child. And every application, every implication of that fact, I learn how to live that out in my life. Secondly, the rest of the world is in bed with evil. That's the rest. Of, that's a fact. That's a truth. It's not debatable. One translation says it reposes. The world reposes 
in evil. Another one says, under the sway of evil. All these, all these ways of translating give you the idea. And I said, it's, you're in bed. You're, you're, you know, we, we say if you're involved with, with a, a situation, you're in bed with it. Well, you're in bed with the evil is what, this, what the, John is saying. And so the question arises as in the last lesson, what do we do? How do we live our lives? What do we do with what we know? How do we live according to this, this lifestyle? And we talked about two responses in our last lesson, and we're going to look at the final one today. In the first one that we discussed, we need to avoid two extremes. We're people of extremes. We go from one direction to the other direction. We, we all experience that. One swing of direction is our human tendency. We live out of balance. We're in balance for a brief moment as the pendulum swings through the point of balance. And our goal is to make that balance, that swing, uh, smaller and smaller. We want to, first of all, we want to uh, avoid trying to influence the world by becoming so like the world that no one sees the difference between us and the world. That's one extreme. I'm going to be like the world. I'm going to get in there with the world. I'm going to be involved with the world. And to the point that people don't know whether you're a Christian or not, you're so involved in the world. We have to avoid that extreme. It's like living in another country. When you go to another country, you try and learn how to live like the people in that country. That's a, a good missionary should do that. He goes in there. We go in there. We try and learn the language. We try and learn the customs. We try and learn how things work. I've been having a really hard time readjusting to America, as you know, with my time. I know we are time conscious people. And I'm not. <laughs> And so, but I, and so I, if I was a good American, I will, I will work more on being time conscious and, and meeting you at, when you are, when, when you, when, at the time we say, I'm, Jim's really good at this. If he says eight o'clock, he's there at eight o'clock. If I say eight o'clock, it's about eight o'clock. And I preach about 30 minutes. <laughs> but we're not to be that way as Christians. On the other hand, we're not to remove ourselves so much from the way the things the world does that we've just become an oddball or monastic. You know, we're just away, you know, like uh, in a monastery or separate from everyone else. So we can't go to that extreme either. So we don't need to go to either one of these extremes. So the question is, how do we how do we find that balance? And I said there's two things where we find the balance. The first one is we, the first step is to live as light. We talked about that in the last lesson. And this takes a lifetime of learning. Learning how to think like those born of God. Learning to walk as Jesus walked. You remember where that is? First John 2, 6. About 30 lessons ago. I don't know. Way back. Learning to walk as Jesus walked. And so the second thing we're going to look at today of how we, how we live our lives, how we're to live our lives, is to refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise. Unfortunately, when we think of compromise or refusing to compromise, a lot of times in our mind, we get this mean spirited, hard nosed person in our mind. I mean, I do a person who refuses to compromise. I think of someone like, I don't know, General Patton or someone, you know, just hard nosed, tough person. Someone we really don't want to be around. And yet that's not our model. Our model is Jesus. Uh, we need to model our behavior around him. How did Jesus live his life? He was a person of light. He was light. That's our first point. And yet he refused to compromise. You never see him compromising. And yet, on the other hand, people want to be with him. He's not mean-spirited. He's not this hard-nosed person that keeps you at, at, at arm's length. 
He's a person you want to be around from all stages of life, from the from the least to the greatest. He attracted people. And so here is a man who said, I am not going to compromise. And yet people were drawn to him. And that's the type of person we want to be. There is a place for compromise, of course. Or just just uh, Google compromise. I did. And you get both extremes. Never compromising and compromise is a wonderful thing to do. Well, at times it is a good thing to do. There's a place and a time for compromise, but not with the truth. Not with the way we're called to live. We don't compromise there. Things of opinion, things that don't matter, things that are not of eternal consequence. Sure, compromise. That's fine. But things that matter, things of eternal consequence, truth, we do not compromise. I want to go to an Old Testament example. The Bible says, the New Testament says, the Old Testament was written for our learning, our examples. And so I want to go to a king who was a good king. His name was Jehoshaphat. And yet he was a, he was. And the reason I chose him is because he was a lot like us. He was a good and godly ruler. And yet he struggled with compromise. His life was not a life of compromise. He was a person who in key areas, key moments of his life, he compromised and he paid a price. This was in a day when. There was a there had been a civil war, the north and the south, and they divided the kingdoms. You had a northern kingdom. You had a southern kingdom. He was part of the southern kingdom. And during the 200 years that the northern kingdom existed, there was not a single righteous, godly king. Every single one of them were ungodly. In the south, there were a few, not all of them. There were a few over time that were good and righteous and godly people. And Jehoshaphat's life wasn't a life of compromise. As I said, he compromised in key areas. It hurt his nation. It hurt his family. It hurt at least one business venture he went into. And it almost cost him his life. You can turn over to Second Chronicles if you want to, but I'm going to read very briefly First Kings, First Kings and Chronicles, they, they, they mirror each other in certain areas. But in First King gives you a description of who this man was. And I want to give you this idea. And it talks about Jehoshaphat, son of Asa. He became king of Judah, Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Now, the king to the north is Ahab. He's the king on the south. He was 35 years when he became king. And then it says in verse 43, in everything he walked in the ways of his father uh, Asa, he did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. And that's an important uh, point that we're going to look at. Here we have a good king. I think in the Lord you are good people, but sometimes we make poor judgments and we can learn from good King Jehoshaphat how good Christians need to be careful. Ahab was this wicked king to the north. Um, He because of this division, uh, Jehoshaphat had built a strong army to protect the northern aggression. That sounds very It's true. (laughs) It was a northern aggression. 
And so he, he protected it by building a strong city. So look at Second Chronicles. You can turn over Second Chronicles, chapter 17, 18, and 19 is where we're going to be. I'm just going to point out a few places. But in 17, verse 1, it says, Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel, the northern kingdom. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah, put garrisons in Judah, and the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. And so he's strengthening his military might to prevent attack from the north. Now, Ahab was a wicked king, but he was fairly smart at the same time. He knew he couldn't win a fight if he picked a fight. He knew they were stronger than him. He wasn't much. uh, He was more of a coward. He he didn't want to fight unless he knew he could win. And so he worms himself into a peaceful, I put that in quotes, a peaceful relationship with the southern kingdom. In chapter 18, verse 1, we can read that. Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor. And he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. So they have this this relationship based on marriage. That was common in their day and time. Uh, a king, two kings, they didn't want to fight each other. So they would their sons and daughters would marry and they'd have an alliance uh, through that. And so this is what Jehoshaphat did. Jehoshaphat compromised for peace. Now, peace is a good thing. Peace should be longed for. But we should not compromise peace. We should not compromise truth for peace. We should not compromise the right for something that's wrong. We're going to see why this is wrong. Jehoshaphat could have said, you know, I'm looking at the greater good. That's a term that we use. We have two goods, and this is the greater good here. Instead of saying, what is right in this situation? And the way this happened was Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter, making Jezebel his mother-in-law. Now, if you you don't know anything about Jezebel, read about her. That's not a good mother-in-law to have. They formed this political alliance, much the way Solomon did. You know, we think about Solomon marrying 300 women. We think, wow, you know, crazy. Well, those were all alliances. He was making peace with all the other nations. That was the purpose of those marriages. And it didn't work. It actually sowed the seeds for division later on. And so Jehoshaphat, if he'd been thinking, should have said, you know, it didn't work for Solomon. Is this what God wants me to do? And he would have had the answer. But it looked good. It looked like a good thing to do. In verse we're looking. Let's see. Yeah, we're looking at the how subtle compromise can be. It kind of just sneaks up on you. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 2. Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people that were with him. In other words, they had a huge feast. They had a big party. They had the time of their lives. And then urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, the king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? That means nothing to us, does it? But to them, it was important. It was a city that had been captured by the Syrians. And that city was a special city. That was a city of refuge. It was an important city. And so here we have this very important city. I don't know what's an important city. Philadelphia. I don't know. That has some historical, you know, like someone had captured Philadelphia. 
Uh, and that's an important historical city. Uh, good things are there historically. I don't know. I've never been to Philadelphia, but there's good stuff there. I know we have someone from Philadelphia here. And, and, it's, uh, and, and so they, he says, sure, that's, that's a good thing to do. Let's, let's do that. And as a result, they agreed to go to war. They went to war. And he almost got himself killed. I'm not going to read this because we just don't have time. But it's a neat story. If you want to read this whole story later on and just kind of put yourself in it, it's, it's great. But what had happened was uh, Ahab said, hey, I've got a good plan on this. Why don't you dress in my armor, the king's armor, and you go in battle. I'll disguise myself and we'll win this battle. Well, it says that the Syrian said, don't attack anyone except for the king of Israel. Just you know, make a beeline for him. And when they made a beeline for Jehoshaphat, he goes, oh, no. I mean, basically, that's what it says. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord saved him. They realized, oh, that's not the king of Israel. That's a disguise. And they went somewhere else. But it almost killed him. He didn't see it coming. He had done a good thing, but he was blinded by the good. That compromise is subtle. Secondly, compromise most often occurs within relationships. Jehoshaphat was sunk deeper and deeper into this compromising relationship. If you look in verse 4 of chapter 18, he says, well, first of all, in the last part of verse 3, he says, I am as you are. My people are uh, as your people. We will join you in war. But then he said, listen carefully. This is what Christians say often. Jehoshaphat also said to the king, this is a good thing. First, seek the counsel of the Lord. He said, hey, we need to pray about this. That's what we would say. We, we need to pray about this before we get into this. And that's a good thing. Seeking the counsel of the Lord, praying about something. That's a really good thing that we need to do. And so they bring in these 400 men. And they all say, you got it. You go to war here. You're going to win. 400 of them. But Jehoshaphat knew something. Something was going on here. And so he asked, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Verse 6. Isn't there a prophet here? And look at Ahab's. Response. I find it humorous. The king of Israel, that's Ahab, says, answers Jehoshaphat. There's still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies anything good about me. He's all, and always bad. It's always bad. Micah, son of Imlah. I don't, want to, I don't want to call this guy in. And so the story goes, read the story yourself. Uh, they send for him, and the guy who goes to get him says, look, 400 people are saying you can, they can win the battle. Say the same thing as he says, all right? You just you, you know, do, do that. Verse 13, Micaiah says, as surely as the Lord has lived, I can only tell what God says. And then he arrives, and he must have just been a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic kind of guy. I would love, I hopefully we'll meet him one day up in heaven. He, he comes in and they say uh, to him, he says, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? The king is asking him this. He says, attack and be victorious, for they will be given to your hand. And he says it in such a way, if, we, if they wrote it the way we would say sarcastically or something, because the king's reply, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Tell me the truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And he goes on to this story of how this happens. And he says, you know, it's disaster. It's going to be disaster if you go down that road. Says, I have to see. He never says anything good. 
kicks him out, puts him in prison. He says, take him uh, out, imprison him, put this fellow in prison, give him nothing but bread and water until I safely return. Micaiah says, if you ever safely return, the Lord has not spoken through me. Mark my words. He looks at everyone else. Mark my words. Mark my words. If he comes back, the Lord's not speaking through me. And, of course, he, Ahab gets himself killed during that time. We do that in relationships. We compromise in relationships. Friendships, social relationships, business relationships. We have good intentions. I want to help. I want to influence. I want to make a difference in this, this club. I want to make a difference in this dating relationship. It's a good thing. I hear this all the time. It's a good thing because I prayed about it. I prayed about it. If that, that's kind of the trump card that someone, someone throws down and says, look, I prayed about it. Therefore, you can't contradict what I said. That's really what they're saying. I prayed about it. Okay, but what did the Lord say? I'm glad you prayed about it. I'm glad you sought the Lord. But sometimes we walk clueless into disaster because we didn't listen to older and wiser people in the Lord. We just do what we want to do. And we justify it saying, I prayed about it. We place ourselves in compromising positions because we think the Lord will bless us. I have a good heart. I'm following my good heart. Are you following God's word? That's the question. You can pray about it all day long, but if you're not following God's word, it doesn't matter. Pray about it, but follow what God says. Later on, we find that Jehoshaphat, he went into a business venture with Ahab's son, lost the entire fleet. I don't know if anyone was killed in that, but the entire business venture was sunk, literally. You'll read that in Second Chronicles 20, verse 35 through 37. You have to be careful with our relationships. You know, much of us go into situations with a high degree of nativity. Jesus spoke to us on that. He said, listen, and this is in Luke chapter 16, verse 8. He says, the sons of men, the people of the world, are more shrewd. They're wiser as they deal with the people than the people of the light. He says, there's something, and I think there's something about our good heart, our good nature that God has given us. I believe God has given us a new heart, a new nature. And we walk into situations just believing that our light's going to shine and people are just going to respond positively. I'm going to come into this relationship that I'm having with someone that I know is not going to be a good relationship, but I'm going to be such a great example that these people are going to go, oh, I want to become a Christian. How naive. I think Jesus is saying here, smarten up, wise up. You need to start thinking these things through. Don't just believe everything that you hear. And compromise, third, has consequences. If it wasn't for the grace of God and God's work, godly Jehoshaphat's compromises would have extinguished the line of David. There would have never been a Jesus. There would have never been a Messiah. 
If you read chapters 21 and 22 of Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter, as I said. When he became the king, the first thing he did was kill all his brothers. All of Jehoshaphat's children killed. The nation turned to idolatry. His son was then murdered through a series of intrigue and more murders. The grand, maternal grandmother killed all her grandchildren. And there was only one left, and that's by the grace of God, Joash, one-year-old child, was the lone survivor, the lone survivor of the line of David. And that's how we got the Messiah. Besides losing all his children and grandchildren, there was wars that were fought that did not need to be fought. Many men died, leaving countless widows, orphans, unnecessarily, because Jehoshaphat compromised I mentioned his business venture. It failed. Surely there were some who were involved that suffered financially, maybe even some that died because of that. Compromise always has consequences. Even though good King Jehoshaphat did not live a life of compromise, he compromised in areas of his life that cost him dearly and cost many other people dearly. We must be people. Who live as light. But at the same time, not compromise. How do we do that? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. We could spend weeks. I could spend weeks on this. But listen to him. Listen to what Paul says. So I tell you this, 417. And insist on it in the Lord. So I can say that with just as much Authority as Paul, I insist that you pay attention right now. (laughs) This is important. I insist on this in the Lord that you no longer live as the world lives, as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thinking without thinking, just the darkened thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding. They don't understand. They're not clear thinkers. The world is not clear thinkers. They're darkened. They're confused. They don't know right from wrong. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that they have. They've hardened their hearts. And they've lost all sensitivity. They give themselves over to feelings. Just whatever I feel, whatever I feel, whatever I feel, whatever I feel. That's the world. Going by your feelings. You didn't come to know Jesus that way, Paul says. Verse 20. Surely you heard of him. You were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with, with regard to that formal way of living, going by your feelings, just do whatever, being darkened in your thinking. Put that off. It's being corrupted by deceitful feelings, deceitful desires. Those things that are urging you on, they're lying to you. Those feelings that are pushing you. It's a lie. It's a lie, he says. You've been taught not to live that way, but to be made new in the attitude of your mind. You have a new life. You have a new mind. You're thinking differently. Live that way. Put on that new self. It's created to be like God. It's righteous. It's true righteousness. It's holiness. That's what life is like. And then he says, it's really practical. He tells you what it is. Listen. Put all falsehood. Speak truthfully to one another. Don't sin in your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold there. 
If you've been stealing, stop stealing and find a job. That's what he says. Find a job. You say, well, they're not paying me enough. I don't care. Find a job. Because that's what God says. That's the truth. My son, when he retired from the army, when he was retired from the army, he was an Apache pilot. I don't know if you know anything about Apache pilots. They have to be smart. They have to be good. It's the hardest uh, helicopter in the world to fly. You're doing multiple things at the same time. The training is arduous. People fall out all the flunk out all the time over and over. One time he was visiting with me, said, Dad, help me with these. And he had a stack of cards three inches thick. And he had to memorize every single word on that about thrust and torque and stuff that I would never would want to even know. He got out of the army. He started looking for a job. What's an Apache? This is a Ph.D. of, of, of helicopter pilots. What is an Apache pilot worth? He couldn't find a job. He got a job as a waiter at Rosie's. Oh, that's beneath him. That's not what he should do. And he's, he's just getting paid minimum wage or less than minimum wage and tips. That's it. It doesn't matter. The, the Bible says get a job. Get a job that underpays you until you get a job that you can. That's what you're worth. And nobody's gets paid what they're worth. If you're in the job, of course, <laughs> if you're paying them, they're getting paid more than they're worth. But no one feels like they're getting paid what they're worth. Just get a job. Why? Because the Bible says, God says, work. Very practical. And he goes on. Be imitators of God. I'm telling you, just read it. All these wonderful things. I'm out of time. Tells you all these wonderful things to do. And he says, be imitators of God, dearly loved children. That's who you are. Live a life of love. Live your life, this life of love that we've been talking about over and over in First John, just as Christ loved and gave himself for us. Practical, everyday living. I want to get practical here. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. If you're 30 and under, pay attention for a second. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you know something. 30 and under. Everyone else can keep their hand down. If you know who Mother Teresa is and you're 30 and under, raise your hand. Say, I'm, I'm raising mine. I'm 30 and under. All right. If you're 20 and under, keep your hand up. 20 and under, you know who Mother Teresa is. She died 20 years ago. She died 20 years ago and people who weren't even born know her. Why? She was a person of influence. She's a person that, oh, I don't agree with every theological thing, but she, I agree with her lifestyle. I agree with her attitude in many, many ways. She was asked to speak at the National Prayer Day or prayer, whatever, they, whatever it's called. 1994, I think. And when she talked about love and kindness, everyone's like, oh, 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 that's really good. And then she got really practical. She said, but how many of you have parents in nursing homes when you could sacrifice and have them in your own home? Now, I'm not saying that there's not a time that people need full-time care. Of course there is. But it's that how many of you who with some sacrifice could have your parents in your home? And it kind of got uncomfortable. 
And she didn't stop there. She said the greatest deterrent to peace in our day is abortion. And you could have heard a pin drop for about two seconds. And then there were some who agreed and started clapping. And the two most important people or the four most important people, however how you say it, in the audience, the president and his wife, the vice president and his wife, sat there without moving. And she went on. They said by the end of her speech, there wasn't a person in the audience she hadn't offended. Because she spoke the truth. And she wasn't afraid of the truth. If I offend you now, I only am speaking the truth or attempting my best to. Here's my example. How many of you have been caught in the frenzy of Charlottesville this week? How many of you have taken sides and justified your position one way or the other? We're moved by a media in this country. This is part of our culture. We're moved by a media that has an agenda. Here's the media's agenda. Make money. That's their agenda. They're going to make money. And so they get an agenda, they get a direction, and they try and move you in that direction so that you'll click on their channel and stay there. And they'll earn money. Remember that when you're watching TV. Remember that when you're reading things. The agenda is not to tell you the truth. The agenda is to move you emotionally in their direction so they can make money. That's it. And if you know that, you can listen in a wise way. Continuing. Have you allowed social media to dictate your thoughts or the word of God? Everything that's put on Facebook is an opinion. Everything. Every blog, every link, every person. It's an opinion. Opinions are okay. There are a dime a dozen. Are we moving with opinion? Are we moving with God's word? And this is what I'm calling us to. Let us begin to be people who do, don't compromise, who live as light, who think, who think through these things. Think through every situation of your life. An event happens. We're bombarded with it for a week through all sorts of media. And it drives us in that direction. This past week, it was Charlottesville. Next week or next month, I'll make a prediction. It's going to be another place. And Charlottesville will be in the past, and you won't even think about it because of this. You think the people in Barcelona give two cents about what happened in Charlottesville. People in Barcelona, if you haven't heard, they're having their own problem. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they're focused on. That's what their media is driving them on. In the past, it was Berkeley, it was Ferguson, it was Baltimore, and it was Suva, Fiji. What was your position in Suva, Fiji, in the year 2000? Anyone? No one here, because my family's gone. They're out of town, except for Julia. No one took, you, you guys didn't care about me? It was a coup. I heard the gun battle. A, a, a shot went off seven, uh, 50 yards from my house. People were killed where I walked. What was your position? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know about it. That's my point. You didn't know about it. The media didn't drive you 
in your feelings there, they were doing it in Fiji pretty well. <clears throat> but the media drives you in whatever, whatever. Be careful. Don't be naive. Don't stand for a good thing. <clears throat> stand for God. Think clear. Think clearly. Is your first reaction to these things emotion? Or do you weigh these things that happen and will continue to happen in light of God's word? That's where you have to go. Not on this person's opinion and that person's opinion, but in light of God's word and knowing that the world lies in the lap of the evil and they will continue to spew it out the way they want to. Are you listening to that and being involved in that? Are you looking at the events of the day through the eyes of God? Hate and murder is as old as Cain. And that's why John said, <clears throat> do not be like Cain, 1 John 3, 12. And then he says, and do not be surprised when these things happen. I wasn't surprised about Barcelona. I was not surprised about Charlotte. I was saddened. I hated it for the people there. It was an awful thing, but I was not surprised. And tomorrow, something's going to happen. And if not tomorrow, the next day. Something's going to happen. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Expect it. If your favorite politician, your favorite preacher, your favorite blogger, <coughs> entertainer, promotes hatred and violence... It is not of God. If they promote fluffy love, compromising peace, just be nice. It's not really peace. John Lydon sang, give peace a chance and went to war with his wife. I'll ask for a raise of hand who knows who John Lennon was. <laughs> he died a long time ago. Give peace a chance. He also sang love, 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 love. Went to war with his wife. We listen to our entertainers more than we listen to God at times. And when I point my finger at you, by the way, I've got three pointing back. Because I preach these sermons because it, it applies to me. I do this. I have to be careful. I have to watch myself. I get involved with Facebook and say, enough, off. I don't need to read this anymore. I need to be away from this junk. It doesn't matter what it is. You got two different, you got five different opinions all over the board. And instead of reading that and being driven by that, I need to read what does God want me to, how does God want me to live? He wants me to shine as lights and dark. When you type up on Facebook, are you careful what you're typing so that it is an expression of God's light? Or are you just gushing out your feelings? The little children's song, be careful little eyes what you see. Maybe we need to sing, be careful little fingers what you type. We do. We all need to be careful little fingers what we type. I'm not thinking of anyone, by the way, right now. I don't have any person in my mind. If you're going, oh, he's, he read my blog. He read my post. I have no one in my mind right now except for me. And so if it's convicting, you be convicted. 
Do you react to the world's expected flare-ups? Or do you react to God's direction? You see, folks, our Christianity isn't theory. It's applied to your everyday life. In the little things. Of course, the big things, too. But those little daily things. I've said this many times. How you spoke to your wife, your spouse, your husband, your children, your parents, coming to church today. You need to be real careful how you do that because I, I mention it often. I'll, you'll always feel bad if you, if, you, if you get in an argument on the way to church. Just remember that <laughs> because I might mention it and you'll think I'm talking about you. And I am. <laughs> but we need to be careful. Everyday little things in life. Be impatient with the preacher when he goes over time. Read this last thing. This is the, the, the uh, paraphrase. Beyond a shadow of, uh, of a doubt, we know. And we know it absolutely that our life came from God and belongs to God. We're loved. We're his children. That's how we live. We also know just as clearly that the entire world system has made its bed in the troubles and pain-ridden agony called evil. They lie there with the evil one without a clue of the danger they're in. Let's live with eyes wide open. Let's live with clear thinking that's directed by God's word. If you're outside of Christ, you're in the dark. You're in that darkness. You're, you can't think clearly. And we're inviting you to come into the light, not because we're good people, but because God's a good God. And we're only 